0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Okay, well, welcome this evening. It's May 9th. Uh, And uh, the topic this evening is membership, and that's a huge topic. So I I thought probably the best thing we can do is start by reading a portion of Scripture, which is actually something in some ways we've been talking about in church a fair bit in the last few weeks. uh, From Acts chapter 2, the end of Acts chapter 2, verses 43 to 47. Uh, This is after Peter has preached the first Christian sermon on on the day of Pentecost. Verse 43 says, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this is kind of a summary of the life of the early church in the early days after the day of Pentecost, uh, which kind of unpacks what it says in verse 42, which is that, They devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So essentially membership in the church means commitment to those things. Uh, It starts with commitment to Jesus, of course, uh, and then uh, leads on to commitment to those who belong to him. Uh, There is a very strange and close relationship between Jesus in the church, which is almost impossible to kind of uh, define. But uh, there's a wonderful the, a wonderful account of the story of, of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter nine, where he's knocked down and he hears a voice and the voice says, why are you persecuting me? And of course, it's the voice of Jesus uh, and Paul doesn't know who, who, who belongs to this voice. Uh, he eventually finds out. But notice what Jesus says. Why are you persecuting me? Paul did not think he was persecuting Jesus. He thought Jesus was dead. He thought he was persecuting the church. Uh, but Jesus identified himself close, so closely with the church that, he, that Jesus himself says that if you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. So there's this very close, uh, what, what the purbook sometimes calls mystical relationship between Christ and his people. Uh, hard to define, but, but extremely connected. Uh, this, this kind of flies against much of what we have in our own culture in the West, which is so incredibly individualistic, where everybody does their own thing, everybody defines themselves. The uh, French philosopher Descartes uh, thought that the only thing he could not doubt was that he was doubting, and so he defined human existence by saying, I doubt, therefore I am. very highly individualistic idea, uh, but the, the Bible doesn't have that same view. Uh, in Africa, people won't say, I think, therefore I am, or I doubt, therefore I am, they will say. I am because we are. And there's something much more biblical about that idea, that we exist in relationships, we exist in community. Uh, And those communities can take different shapes and forms, but the Christian community in particular is a community which is bound together uh, under one God, the Father, uh, by the work of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the church is uh, this incredible um, uh, spiritual reality. But at the same time, it's uh, a body of sinful human beings. But Martin Luther talked about the church as being simultaneously made up of sinners and saints, uh, those who were sinners and saved at the same time. Well, what do we mean when we talk about Uh, membership, especially if we're talking about Church of the Ascension. Uh, Ascension believes that uh, we need to welcome people in this congregation without judgment. Uh, That means that we will welcome people who are at various stages in their Christian life uh, or people who are not Christians at all. um, Welcome them to come and worship and participate in the community as much as they can. Uh, Of course, children are welcome here and are received into the church as members through baptism. Uh, And uh, when they come of age, then they have to make a decision about whether they will take membership for themselves as well. But it's not just children who we want to affirm. We want to affirm people who are questioning or searching. Uh, It doesn't mean that they will be Uh, made full members, but we want to welcome them as much as we can. I have uh, a friend who now is uh, a seminary professor, actually, and she uh, was was raised uh, in a Jewish household. Her father was a rabbi, her grandfather was a rabbi, her uncles were rabbis, uh, and she herself was teaching liturgy at the Jewish Theological Seminary. So she was uh, kind of dug in to that Jewish community. At the same time, she was very attracted to the Christian gospel, uh, but she knew that joining meant not only joining a new community, but probably meant to break with an old community. So she went to a church in Dallas, Texas for five years uh, and sat in the back pew. She would come in while the first hymn was being sung and sit in the back pew and leave during the last hymn so that she wouldn't have to talk to anybody. And for five years, she listened and participated in Christian worship before she decided to be baptized. So we would love to be a place, Ascension would love to be a place where people who are seeking can find uh, a place they can do that quietly if they want, uh, a place where they can meet other people and, and present their questions uh, not be not be judged for uh, the questions they might have. And even people who have been Christians who go through seasons of life where they're going through some kind of difficulty uh, or some kind of uh, period of doubt there, there are all kinds of things people go through in their in their walk through life and so we want to make sure that people, Are allowed to encounter Christ in the midst of whatever they are going through. Uh, That doesn't mean that the church says anything goes, but it means that we'll walk with you through it. Well, what is uh, what is membership in in a why is membership in a local church important? Membership is an important uh, step of commitment. by an individual uh, so that that individual will know that there is a community that they are committed to and so that the community will know that that person is committed to the the community as well. So it gives a sense of accountability. Uh, At Ascension, it's also important if we have an annual meeting or a special meeting uh, of the congregation at which votes have to be taken and only members would be allowed to vote at those meetings. Uh, and it's also, membership is also required uh, and membership in, including congregation uh, confirmation in this case, if an individual is going to serve on the vestry or what's sometimes called the parish council, the group of uh, individuals, lay people, and clergy together, that make most of the decisions for the life of the church. Uh, so, who can become an actual member of the church? Uh, Ascension, Ascension's bylaws uh, have four four things that are outlined for becoming members. A member, uh, if to become a member of Ascension, person has to be baptized and be a regular worshiping member of the church, uh, usually meaning a communicant member, somebody who comes up and takes communion, must be 18 years of age or older, uh, and uh, is, uh, I'll quote this, on the treasurer's records as a regular subscriber to the revenues of the congregation. So a regular giver. So that's, that's the first thing, baptized, a communicant, member, regular worshiper, 18 years of age, and giving to the congregation. Secondly, uh, someone who wants to be a member needs to be able to affirm their faith in Jesus Christ uh, as their Savior and their Lord, and affirm the Nicene Creed as a sufficient statement of that faith. Uh There is also an expectation that someone who is uh, a member would be confirmed or willing to be confirmed by laying on of hands by a bishop. Thirdly, uh, a, a prospective member needs to declare that with God's help, he or she will seek to live his or her life under the authority of the scriptures. And in accordance with the constitution and canons of the Anglican Church of North America, we can talk a little bit about some of those later this evening, and then uh, fourthly, they have to complete a membership process. They're kind of doing that, um, and uh, which is affirmed by the rector and the vestry. So, any any questions so far about any of that? We're going to talk about more of that in some detail. Okay. Uh, The rite of membership asks several questions. Uh, Do you believe the Christian faith as set forth in Holy Scripture and summarized in the Nicene Creed? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? As you come into membership in this congregation, do you commit yourself to following Christ? To come together week by week for corporate worship? And to make every effort to worship, grow, and give. Those three words, worship, grow, and give, are all over Ascension documents as uh, a statement of what we do in this church. Uh, To make every effort to worship, grow, and give in all areas of your life and vocation. Fourth, as a member of this congregation, will you seek at all times to walk with patience and gentleness bearing with your sisters and brothers in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And fifth, will you seek to live your life under the authority of the scriptures and the constitution and canons of the Anglican Church in North America? So those are the questions that those who are going to be members will will be asked when they come up on a Sunday morning, on Membership Sunday. Uh, And uh, the answers... Uh, are basically I do or I will with God's help, depending on the question. Uh, we we know that we need uh, God's help to do anything, uh, and especially if it's anything to do with uh, how to live as a Christian, how to live as a member of Christ's body, we certainly need God's help in order to do that. Anything there that's confusing, worrisome, strange? Okay. Uh, okay. So membership classes—you've been through, talked about that. There is, there is a termination of membership is all is always a possibility, and it can happen in several ways. Uh, obviously. Uh, membership is terminated if someone dies or if they request to have their name removed from the membership rules. Uh, So that seems fairly clear. Uh, Membership can also be terminated uh, by the rector in cases where a member ceases to attend or contribute to or participate in the life of the congregation for a period of one year or more. now, if, if something like that happens, there will be lots of effort taken uh, by the staff and especially by the rector and the associates to try and find out uh, what's up and, and where people are and to uh, encourage renewed engagement by a member in the congregation or to find out you know, what kinds of things have happened at Ascension that have been difficult Uh, And if there there won't be any termination of membership without some kind of uh, attempt to discuss it with the rector. Uh, Thirdly, the rector could terminate a person's membership at ascension uh, if that person ceases to be willing to affirm (coughs) the membership requirements as set out uh, in the vows that were taken. So uh, especially, for example, uh, no longer believing the creed, no longer believing that Jesus saves, no longer believing that the scriptures are the ultimate authority for the church, and so forth. So, uh, and again, there would be conversation with the rector. uh, There would be uh, a letter that would be sent before any final decision was made. And then if a person's name was removed, then uh, a letter would be sent to the person letting them know that that had happened. But we hope that doesn't happen, but uh, we recognize that we're fallible. Other people are fallible. People are living in a difficult uh, culture for the gospel. So we recognize that things like that will happen from time to time. one of the things that is affirmed by the Anglican Church of North America, uh, which is becoming increasingly important as we look at uh, our hopes that the Anglican communion itself will um, will be strengthened in its biblical foundations and in its uh, commitment to orthodox Uh, Christian faith. So one of the things that's important for that, for the Anglican Church in North America is something called the Jerusalem Declaration. It was an event uh, that happened a few years ago in uh, 2008 in Jerusalem called GAFCON, which stands for the Global Anglican – it's terrible, this is on tape – Global Anglican Futures Conference. Yeah. Uh, uh, at that uh, conference, where there were a huge number of... Uh, it started with bishops, their, their, their wives, but also uh, clergy and lay people from very, all over the world, predominantly from Africa, but from, from all over the world, uh, gathered there for about a week. And this is the, the statement that came out. I'll try to summarize it. Um, it says that we express our loyalty as disciples to the king of kings the lord jesus we joyfully embrace his command to proclaim the reality of his kingdom which he first announced in this land the gospel of the kingdom is the good news of salvation liberation and transformation for all in light of the above we agree to chart a way forward together that promotes and protects the biblical gospel and mission to the world, solemnly declaring the following tenets of orthodoxy, which underpin our Anglican identity. So then there are 14 points. The first is we rejoice in the gospel of God, through which we have been saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because God first loved us, we love him and his believers bring forth fruits of love, ongoing repentance, lively hope, and thanksgiving. The second statement is about the scriptures. Uh, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament contain all that is necessary for, for salvation, and they are to be translated, read, preached, taught, and obeyed. Uh, third, we uphold the, the four ecumenical councils. Uh, I can't name them all right off the bat, but uh, Nicaea being the, the, the most important of those four, uh, and the three historic creeds. So that was the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed is said most Sundays. The Apostles' Creed is usually said at morning prayer, uh, but because we, we have Holy Communion at this parish every Sunday, we rarely say the Apostles' Creed. It's a bit shorter. Uh, It's set at morning prayer, um, and it's often set at baptisms, as it's thought to be originally uh, something that had to be said by baptismal candidates. The the third creed is the Athanasian creed, which the prayer book says should be read once a year in church. It's really long, uh, and we are going to say it in three weeks. We're going to say it on Trinity Sunday, which is always an appropriate time, to affirm a very long statement about the trinity so we're, we're going to do that on on trinity sunday and there'll probably be lots of people saying what did that mean but that's okay um, it's a wonderful statement uh fourth we uphold the 39 articles we talked about that the last time i was here uh, talked about 39 articles a little bit this is a statement that comes out of the reformation uh which uh, Really affirmed some of the truths of the gospel that needed to be affirmed at that time, and we still think they needed to—they need to be affirmed. But at th- that point, they were under. There were a number of things that were kind of under attack that needed to be reaffirmed. Uh, we gladly proclaim and submit to the. This is point five. Submit to the unique and universal lordship of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, humanity's only Savior from sin, judgment, and hell, who lived the life we could not live, and died the death that we deserve. By his atoning death and glorious resurrection, he secured the redemption of all who come to him in repentance and faith." So this is a statement about essentially about salvation, about the work of Christ and what he did for us in the cross and resurrection. Sixth, we rejoice in our Anglican sacramental and liturgical heritage, as an expression of the gospel, and we uphold the 1662 Book of Common Prayer as a true and authoritative standard of worship and prayer to be translated and locally adapted for each culture. This is a very careful statement. First of all, it sa- it does not say that the Anglican Church is the body of Christ. Period. It says we are an expression of that body and an authentic expression of the body of Christ and our sacramental and liturgical heritage is an appropriate way of being a Christian. Uh, Second, it says that the 1662 Book of Common Prayer is a true and authoritative standard of worship and prayer. Uh, In other words, this, that particular um, prayer book, which has been authoritative for Anglicans since 1662, is still authoritative but is not uh, a fixed text, which is the only thing that can be used. Uh, It says it can be translated and locally adapted for each culture. Just before we started, we were talking about the Kenyan liturgy, uh, which uh, the the Kenyan prayer book was uh, released. I think the whole thing was released in 1982, I think. No, no, it's later. 1992 Uh, but it was it was under uh, it was being experimented with when when my wife and I lived in Kenya in the late 1980s and was received with great joy it was worked on by clergy and lay people from across the Anglican Church in Kenya and it, it included a lot of things which were simply very appropriate for the African context a lot of prayers about crops and herds and, you know, praying for our cows and our goats. Uh, there were prayers for rain. There were prayers to, uh, There was a wonderful service to restore uh, a building after it had been profaned. Uh, there was, uh, this particular service has been used in a number of ways, but it came out of an incident that happened in Nairobi when uh, the, the, uh, the police chased protest, there were a group of people protesting something that the government had done, and the police chased them from Uhuru Park in central Nairobi into the Anglican Cathedral and beat them with billy clubs in the pews of the, of the cathedral. And the archbishop said, I am not going to do another service here until we have driven the demons out so it's, a, it's become a very significant service in in Kenya to use when something horrific has happened, uh, either kind of demonic or uh, political. Those things are sometimes connected, um, and so it was it was really appropriate for that culture. But also, just in the Eucharistic liturgy, there are a lot of very appropriate, uh, contextually appropriate things that that were there, which people in other parts of the world, have appreciated as well. So instead of saying, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, it says, and with angels and archangels and faithful ancestors in heaven. Uh, there, there are a number of things in, in that liturgy that kind of ring true in, from that culture. Uh, seventh, we recognize that God has called and gifted bishops, priests, and deacons in historic succession to equip all the people of God for their ministry in the world. And we uphold the classic Anglican ordinal as an authoritative standard for clerical orders. So the the ordinal is part of the prayer book. Uh, Originally, during the Reformation, it was a separate book, but it's been included in the prayer book and it's basically the rites for the ordination of bishops, priests, and deacons. Uh, includes all the vows that, that those people being ordained to those orders have to take and what their responsibilities are. So basically, we are a church that's, that's organized in, around a threefold order of ministry. And that threefold order of ministry has biblical roots, and certainly by the second century was the normal way the church was, was organized in the Mediterranean world. Uh, by the time we get to the letters of Ignatius, which were written uh, in, the, in the first decade of the second century, that's pretty well fixed. Uh, I think there are, there are lots of arguments that can be made for an Episcopal uh, structure on the basis of the New Testament. Uh, on the other hand, the, it's not an, an ironclad case you can make, arguments for uh, a Presbyterian system of government or even a congregational system of government on the basis of the New Testament. Uh, So we can wrangle about those things. But again, uh, this statement, the Jerusalem Declaration, says that uh, we have found this to be uh, a helpful way to organize the church. The eighth is uh, probably the most controversial statement that came into the Jerusalem Declaration and in a sense is the reason why GAFCON was held was so that this statement number eight could could be public in the communion. We acknowledge God's creation of humankind as male and female and the unchangeable standard of Christian marriage between one man and one woman as the proper place for sexual intimacy and the basis of the family. We repent of our failures to maintain this standard and called for a call for a renewed commitment to lifelong fidelity in marriage and abstinence for those who are not married. So you can see, obviously, the issue of homosexuality had become a major issue in the communion, but there are other issues as well that, that have been major issues in the communion for a long time. One is polygamy, which I think we may have talked about Last time I was here, that has been a major issue in Africa and how to deal with polygamous situations Uh, in our culture. uh, Divorce and remarriage has been a major issue. Uh, Premarital sexual relationships have been a major issue. And so uh, the Jerusalem Declaration says there is a Christian standard that we're aiming for. Uh, There is grace. There is always grace. Uh, And we need grace. But there, there is a standard uh, which God has set that we are to aspire to and work towards. Uh, statement nine says, we gladly accept the great commission of the risen Lord to make disciples of all nations and to seek those who do not know Christ and to baptize, teach, and bring new believers to maturity. Uh, the mission mandate of the church uh, was, felt, it was felt that the mission mandate of the church really needed to be underlined as well. Uh, we're re- mindful of our responsibility to be good stewards of God's creation, to uphold and advocate justice in society, and to seek relief and empowerment of the poor and the needy. Uh, this, uh, I wasn't involved in the discussions when when this declaration was being put forward, but I suspect that this statement uh, paragraph 10 of the Jerusalem declaration was put in because non-Western churches uh, desperately want to emphasize that the gospel is has to be a whole gospel for the for the whole person that the gospel is not just about words it's not just about uh, our vertical relationship with God it's also about horizontal relationships uh, with one another and with Uh, with uh, the creation itself so uh, justice and peace and uh, empowerment for the poor uh, ecological responsibility all these things are part of the mission of the church not simply evangelism Uh, evangelism is crucial and important but it's not all that there is to the mission of the church Uh, Number 11 says we are committed to the unity of all those who know and love Christ and to building authentic ecumenical relationships. We recognize the orders and jurisdiction of those Anglicans who uphold orthodox faith and practice, and we encourage them to join us in this declaration. Uh, There, There have been Anglicans who have left the Anglican Communion Uh, over the years for various reasons, often small groups, uh, but a couple of large ones. One of them was uh, a a group called uh, the Church of England in South Africa, and it's a very confusing bit of history. It happened more than 100 years ago. It was a confusing bit of history in which one bishop was excommunicated by his local bishop, uh, but then because... Uh, South Africa at the time the church was under the Privy Council of the British Parliament. He appealed to the Privy Council and was acquitted but another bishop had already been appointed in his place. so they ended up with two dioceses and a split which was quite nasty and continued. Uh, And so the, uh, the Gafcon movement has welcomed the Church of England in South Africa which has not been in the Anglican Communion for a hundred years into the GAFCON fellowship, which I think was a wonderful thing to do. And there have been a a few other churches over the years that have done the same thing. And so there's been a move to include them in the GAFCON movement if they're willing to be part of it. Uh, Number 12 says, we celebrate the God-given diversity among us, which enriches our global fellowship and we acknowledge freedom in secondary matters we pledge to work together to seek the mind of Christ on issues that divide us. Uh, This uh, statement seems to come out of the reality that some of those involved in the GAFCON movement are very Anglo-Catholic, and some are uh, very Protestant, almost almost non-liturgical. If you go to the Diocese of Sydney uh, in Australia, and then the next week you go to the Diocese of Quincy In Illinois, you will think you are in completely different worlds. Uh, But they're both Anglicans and both uphold the gospel and both affirm the creeds. But their manner of doing that is really uh, incredibly different. Uh, I know that some of the bishops from Sydney's a massive diocese, huge diocese, has five bishops. And I know that a couple of the bishops, in order to go to the Gafcon Conference, had to buy robes because they didn't have any. Uh, so it's, it's very low church, and uh, but authentically Anglican in a, in a way that's different from other parts of the world. Uh, thirteen is possibly the most controversial, and and not in. I think it's not entirely clear uh, what it implies. Uh, I think there's some debate about it. But thirteen says we reject the authority of those churches and leaders who have denied the orthodox faith. In word and deed, uh, or word or deed, we pray for them and call on them to repent and return to the Lord. Uh, so, the phrase "we reject the authority of those churches" uh, is—it's unclear whether that means that if you sign the Jerusalem Declaration, you may not have fellowship with with anyone that belongs to one of those churches. There are several of those now. Uh, it, it's it's a little unclear, but uh, that'll probably be discussed at the at the upcoming GAFCON conference. Fourteen says we rejoice at the prospect of Jesus coming again in glory, and while we await this final event of history, we praise him for the way he builds up his church through his Spirit by miraculously changing lives. So that's the GAFCON statement with that the Anglican Church of North America. Uh, is a party to uh, so part of uh, membership in this church which is a congregation of the Anglican Church in North America would include an affirmation of that Jerusalem declaration um, any any questions so far we're, we're moving along here we've got. Okay, so we've got another 45 minutes and lots of things to talk about. But I want to make sure we talk about the things you want to talk about as well. Okay. Uh, Let me talk a little bit about uh, responsibilities of the laity of the church. Uh, And in order to do that, I want to read a little bit of... uh, Title I of the Canons of the Anglican Church in North America, uh, which is, Title I is called Organization and Administration of the Church. Uh, And Canon 10 from Title I is called Of the Laity. And it says, The people of God are the chief agents of the mission of the Church to extend the kingdom of God. By so presenting Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, that people everywhere will come to put their trust in God through him, know him as savior and serve him as Lord in the fellowship of the church. The effective ministry of the church is the responsibility of the laity, no less than it is a responsibility of bishops and other clergy. It is incumbent for every lay member of the church to become an effective minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one who is spiritually qualified, gifted, called, and mature in the faith. Each diocese may may establish standards for the ministry of the laity. So, when we talk about the ministry of the church, we are not talking about just those who have their shirts on backwards, uh, but all those who are baptized and believe in Jesus are ministers of the church. And in fact, in many ways, the ordained clergy are at a disadvantage. The main disadvantage that ordained clergy have is that they're incredibly busy with the things of the church itself and therefore have less contact uh, with people who are not members of the church than, than the laity of the church do. So in a sense the laity of the church are the front line of the ministry of the church to the world. Uh, the job of the clergy is primarily to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the work of ministry is not something that ordained people do alone. It's actually something that's done by the whole church. And the ordained ministry is to equip people to do that ministry. Uh, we, we have a uh, a little bit of a problem with, with our language sometimes uh, because we we often talk about the ordained ministry as the ministry, but I think that's it should be considered shorthand for the ordained ministry. We've also got a problem with the punctuation of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is a wonderful chapter. It's actually it's a great chapter to read this week because it's about in, partly about the ascension. Uh, but in, in Ephesians 4, Paul is talking about the unity of the body of Christ and he uses that phrase which we mentioned earlier today to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace there is one body one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of us all who is above all and through all and in all so there's one church and then paul says but grace was given to each according to the measure of christ's gift Uh, and then he talks about the ascension as the kind of first step in christ sending the holy spirit to give those gifts Uh, so in verse 10 he says he who descended is also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things and his gifts were that some should be apostles some prophets some evangelists some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the ministry for the building up of the body of christ There are a few translations that put a comma after the word saints. So it would read like this. Some pastors and teachers to equip the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for building up the body of Christ. So that would imply that it's the pastors and teachers who are to do the work of ministry. But that that doesn't work well. Uh, Grammatically, uh, there seem to be... uh, it, verse twelve seems to talk about <clears throat> what the those in verse eleven are to do, and that's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So um, we need to keep uh, keep that comma out of there, uh, so that uh, equipping the saints for the work of ministry is is what the clergy are to do, uh, so that all God's people can do the work of ministry. Well, what are those? particular duties that the laity have. Uh, The canon lists uh, 10 duties of the laity. The first is to worship God, uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit every Lord's Day in a church unless reasonably prevented. uh, Second, So uh, I love the, the fact that they put worship first, And they put worship in a Trinitarian context. Uh, This is about God, it's not about us. And so to worship God needs to be our first priority. Secondly, to engage regularly in the reading and study of scripture. Uh, In other words, our biblical knowledge as members of Christ's body should not come simply from uh, what we hear in the sermon on Sunday, or even what we get in our small group, but it should be a regular part of our own uh, discipline to read the Bible together, or read the Bible separately, individually, and to study it. Uh, There are various, of course, all kinds of programs for doing this, and my wife and I have been through many. trying to find the right pattern, and there seem to be different patterns for different times of life. Uh, But um, it's really important to find a a regular way of studying the Bible. Third, to observe their baptismal vows, to lead an upright and sober life and not give scandal to the church. Uh, The church has enough scandal. Uh, We don't need any more. so it's the duty of all members of the body of Christ to, uh, to seek to live a life that honors Christ. Again, uh, and you can't emphasize grace enough. People, people fail. We say the confession every week for a reason, because we need to. Uh, we recognize that people are sinful and needy and and very often fail, but there, there are there are standards of behavior that God has given us and we need to to do what we can to follow those in the power of the spirit uh, fourth to present to present their children and those who have those they have led to the lord for baptism and confirmation uh, our children should be uh, both brought up to know and fear the lord but they should also be given that chance right at the beginning of their life to be dedicated to God uh, and to be included in in the worship and life of the church. Fifth, to give regular financial support to the church with the biblical tithe as the minimum standard of giving. Uh, The word tithe means a tenth. So uh, there's this kind of thing where people say, well, I tithe 5%. Well, no, that means you half tithe. Uh, So... The, the tithe is the biblical standard. There are other things in uh, the Old Testament besides tithes. There are offerings. There are gifts of alms that are given from time to time. That The assumption of the Old Testament texts that talk in great detail about tithes are that the tithe is basic and that offerings come on top of that. Uh, but it's, And it's not just uh, the Old Testament that talks about tithing. Uh, The New Testament talks a lot about giving uh, and doesn't usually use the language of the tithe, but Jesus did uh, in Matthew 23 when he is talking about the Pharisees and he's denouncing them for their hypocrisy. He says, you tithe the mint and cumin that grow around your house. So in other words, you tithe the weeds that you use for your spices that grow around your house. And then he said, this you ought to do, uh, not neglecting the the weightier parts of justice and mercy. So it's not that Jesus said, you know, you you don't have to tithe. He said, no, of course, you, you should tithe. But it's just that that's not the most important duty of someone who is seeking the kingdom of God. So financial support of the church, uh, tithing as the standard. It seems to be the biblical way to go. Uh, somebody will say, well, the problem, of course, with the New Testament is that you're not supposed to give just 10%. You're supposed to give 100%. Uh, that's true, but I'm not sure that wasn't true in the Old Testament, too. No. The, the people of God were supposed to give their entire life to God. Um, point six, to practice forgiveness daily according to our Lord's teaching. I like this point because it's not just that we need to practice confession of our own sins, but remember that we need to practice forgiveness of others. Uh, The Lord's Prayer tells us to do this, uh, and we certainly have probably daily opportunity uh, to do this. Uh, Seventh says to receive worthily the sacrament of Holy Communion. I would interpret the word worthily Mm -hmm not as meaning that you have to make yourself worthy in order to receive communion, but rather that you need to receive communion with faith, with thanksgiving. So to receive worthily means to receive knowing uh, that Jesus has done the ultimate for us. He has died for us, he has risen again, And so we put our trust, we put our faith in him and we receive uh, because of what he has done. Uh, Number eight says to observe the feasts and fasts of the church set forth in the Anglican formularies. Uh, In other words, there is special emphasis put on making sure that people come to church on Christmas and Easter and Pentecost and other major, major festivals that people... Uh, make every effort to uh, to get here for those events. You will see the numbers go up on those days. It happens in every church. Uh, number nine to continue his or her instruction in the faith, and so to remain an effective minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so, uh, to be a Christian is to be a lifelong learner. To be a disciple means to continue to learn about the faith and to to learn how to put it into practice tenth to devote themselves to the ministry of Christ among those who do not know him so evangelism utilizing the gifts that the holy spirit gives them for the effective extension of god's kingdom so evangelism and uh, other forms of holistic mission of the church Thanks. So that's what the Anglican Church of North America says about membership. Any. This is pretty common sense Christian stuff for the most part. Some of it well said. Okay. At Ascension, there are these three words worship, grow, and give, which describe what Ascension is trying to do. Um, so there are. Jonathan has uh, written, uh, Jonathan Millard, the rector, has written a few things about uh, each of those. So let me, uh, yeah, before we get to worship, grow, and give, he says there are a few basics. Baptism, belief, um, that everyone who uh, is a Christian should be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, Uh, which makes one a member of the church, a full member of the church. And so if you haven't been baptized, we can organize that. Uh, It's funny how uh, some people do manage to avoid certain things. Uh, I I did a confirmation a couple of weeks ago at Trinity School for Ministry. A wonderful student who's from New Zealand, uh, and uh, she worked for the Diocese of Egypt for five years, and is intending to go back to New Zealand for ordination. And she came up to me one day. I've known her for years, and we worked together in the Diocese of Egypt. She came up to me one day, rather sheepishly, and said, "I've never been confirmed." <laughs> so, yeah, I think if you're going to, you know, fill out those forms for the diocese to be ordained, you should probably get a confirmation certificate. You should probably get confirmed. So we had a wonderful service of confirmation at Trinity School for Ministry a couple of weeks ago. and uh, She was confirmed. And um, I did it partly because she wanted to be confirmed in the Diocese of Egypt. And I'm still an assistant bishop for Egypt. So uh, her confirmation certificate is coming from Cairo next week. Actually, this week. Uh, so baptism, confirmation, uh, belief. Uh, Jonathan wrote that belief must be accompanied, er, baptism must be accompanied by Christian belief, uh, and uh, and it must be accompanied by seeking to become a disciple. One of the things that I think it's important for us to to remember uh, is that there are certain certain beliefs that are more essential than others. Uh, there are certain things that that simply are not negotiable. Certain things that are more debatable, and certain things that are certainly non-essential. So, belief in the Trinity is non-negotiable. Belief that Jesus died and rose from the dead, uh, and uh, is our Savior and the only Savior. Uh, that's pretty non-negotiable. Belief that the Bible is the word of God is non-negotiable. On the other hand, attempting to describe the exact nature of the authority of Scripture, that might lead us into some debates. So uh, there are a lot of words that float around concerning Scripture, uh, and the the degree to which Scripture is authoritative, that that people debate intensely about uh, infallibility, inerrancy, sufficiency—all uh, of these these words uh, attempt to give precision to what the authority of Scripture means, but they're they're a little slippery sometimes. Uh, I'd prefer not to use double negatives to describe something that's positive. So. Um, I prefer to talk about the Bible as the authoritative word of God and all that it teaches. Um, The exact nature of how God gave us that scripture and and how it's to be understood, that's that's much more complicated. There are things that are extremely debatable. Uh, I I teach uh, at least once a year in Egypt at... uh, our diocesan college there, called the Alexandria School of Theology. And I know that every time I go, no matter what kind of class I'm teaching, sometime during the first day of of lectures, somebody's gonna ask something about predestination. It just happens every time. Now, I think it might partly be because uh, Egyptian culture uh, and Islamic culture is very fatalistic. And so they, they live and breathe that culture And fatalism translated into Christian terms sometimes gets us into a discussion of predestination and free will. So they always want to know what I think about it. And uh, so I usually tell them that on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I'm a Methodist, and on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I'm a Presbyterian, and on Sunday, I just go to church. And they seem to think that's okay. Uh, so, you know, predestination and free will is something we're not, we're never going to be able to completely sort out, I think. Uh, it's something that's debatable. Uh, whether we should immerse everyone uh, when we do a baptism or whether uh, sprinkling or pouring of water is permissible, eh, perhaps that's a debatable point. I'd prefer to immerse, frankly, but it's, sometimes it's not practical. Uh what happens at communion? Uh, how, what, what happens, does something happen to the bread and wine? How is Christ present at communion? Is there some kind of spiritual presence at Holy Communion? This has is, this is, uh, led to many debates in the history of the church. Uh, that's not, I, I don't think that's an essential, one particular understanding of that is essential. Um, So that's a debatable doctrine. Then there are lots of other non-essential things. Uh, Whether you vote Democrat or Republican, I suppose. Uh, um, And I I tell people that's okay, I don't do either. (laughs) It's nice being a Canadian some days. Uh, How how church architecture should be structured. Uh, That's really not essential at all. Uh, each way that we build a church building uh, will convey a particular theological meaning, but there, there are some important theological meanings that can be learned in very different buildings. Uh, whether we sing old hymns or only new ones or only old ones or a combination, this is, this is not the most important discussion, although one would think it was sometimes. <clears throat> from what are sometimes called the worship wars uh, in the church so there, there, are, there are lots of things that are there, there are things that are essential there are things that are debatable there are things that are non-essential Saint Augustine said in essentials there should be unity in non-essentials liberty and in all things charity uh, it, it, difficult in the internet age I think to remember the charity part I think we should be hard at the center and soft at the edges. Uh, we need to have be pretty clear on what's essential, uh, what the Christian gospel is. Uh, but the edges should remain soft because there are things we simply don't have a clear understanding of from Scripture. <coughs> there are there are things that uh, are going to be more difficult for people in one culture or another to be able to understand. So it, it's important that we are soft in allowing people to discuss things that are not as important. So worship at, at Ascension. Uh, everyone, everyone worships. Every human being is a worshiper. Uh, and what you worship is what you become So worship is incredibly important. Uh, Roman soldiers, before they went to war, would go to the center of Rome, to the temple of Mars, and sacrifice pigs on the altar of Mars, the God of of War. If you worship the God of War, you become warlike. So we need to be clear about who it is that we worship and that uh, how, we honor, uh, how we honor God will affect what we become. Uh, Jonathan gave me this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, which is really good. A person will worship something, have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Uh, Jesus said to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Uh, And so we put a a great priority on worship here at Ascension. Unless there's a mistake, which happens, then nothing happens by accident on Sunday morning. It's, it, this is very carefully organized worship here. And uh, a lot of our, the staff con- uh, conversation on a weekly basis uh, that I've experienced being here is about uh, what happens at the worship service. Now, there's a a lot of stuff involved in that. Uh, A lot of things like worshiping newcomers, like uh, safety of the congregation, like how we treat our children, like how we treat our old people, people with special needs. So there there are a lot of dimensions uh, to to how worship is organized here. Uh, But much of it has to do with the very uh, central things like how we say our prayers, how we do our preaching, Uh, how we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. So those things are done very carefully. And people who are involved in them, whether they are distributing a communion cup or uh, praying for people uh, for healing after they've received communion or whether they're in the choir, all of these things are done with with a lot of training and preparation and uh, a lot of prayer. So I've been really impressed at at how Ascension has given that priority to to that dimension of worship. Now, worship isn't only about Sunday morning. It's about our entire lives and about how we're going to give our lives to Jesus uh, every day. Uh, But the worship on Sunday morning is a time in which we can focus our worship together together as a community so that the rest of our life can be a life of worship as well one of the things i've sometimes heard not so much at ascension but in many other places is people saying things like well you know i've I've been looking for a church but i can't really find a good church i'm looking for a place where i can where i can get my needs met or where i can really get something out of the worship um I understand people have spiritual needs and and want to come away from worship uh, encouraged and enriched but it's not about us worship is is about giving ourselves to God not about what we get out of the worship so um, we want to make that that worship a priority here uh, Anglicans uh, have resources for worship. Obviously, for Sunday worship, we have uh, uh, things like the Liturgy of the Eucharist, but the Book of Common Prayer, which we're we're still using uh, much of the time now until uh, the Anglican Church in North America comes out with its new prayer book, which will be next year in 2019. I've seen all kinds of drafts of all kinds of services, and they're still looking for for feedback for for much of it but uh, um, and Andrea uh, Jonathan Millard's wife is on the committee that's that's producing these texts they're really good Uh, so the prayer book is uh, contains services that can be used in the morning at noon in the evening and late at night it contains a, a lectionary of daily readings and weekly readings So readings that would be done, uh, morning and evening prayer, readings that would be done at at communion every week. The the daily office, the morning and evening prayer lectionary is a two-year lectionary. The one for Holy Communion is a three-year lectionary. Uh, There are um, resources for daily devotions. There is uh, the entire book of Psalms in the prayer book. Uh, so there are and and the ordinal is in the per the the uh, services of ordination as well as some pastoral offices baptisms confirmation funerals weddings uh, and uh, catechetical resources uh, and the 39 articles and so forth are all contained within the one book. this is a, an incredible resource not only for community worship but also for uh, for private worship. So I recommend as soon as that prayer book comes out next year that everybody get themselves a copy. It going be very, very helpful. So worship is the first priority here. Secondly, we want every member of Ascension to be able to grow. Uh, Jesus in John 15 said, Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Paul in Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So if we are disciples of Jesus Christ who are filled with the Spirit, uh, we need to pray that God will produce good fruit in our lives that will, that will uh, be a witness to the world. Uh, so prayer, studying the Bible, uh, evangelism, fasting, those kinds of things lead to Christian growth. Uh, it's obviously it's not always automatic Uh, when we grow a plant in our garden it's not automatic that the vegetables will will certainly appear or that the flowers will suddenly bloom Uh, it takes time and it's God that gives the growth but there are things that we can do to encourage that growth to happen in our lives and one of the main things that Ascension Uh, encourages is for everyone to join a community group so if you're not in a community group yet uh, you should contact Marilyn and uh, what's her email her email is well you can you can actually sign up online at ascensionpittsburgh.org slash community groups or you can contact Marilyn at, at the office uh, and then, so worship grow, and then the third thing is give. Uh, obviously, giving money is a priority. <laughs> we need to keep the the place open and warm in the winter and cool in the summer. But um, giving is not just about finances. Money is money is a convenient thing that, that we have that reduces our our resources to something we can carry around with us. But really giving is about giving uh, whatever gifts that we have for the service and glory of God. Uh, So everybody has a gift or more than one gift. I think you've talked about that here a little bit. Uh, And those gifts uh, are for the building up of the body of Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 and other places, but 1 Corinthians 12 is the... The most uh, thorough discussion Paul has about this he talks about the fact that we are all members of the same body. We've all been made to drink of one spirit, uh, but that, but we all, but we have a variety of gifts. Uh, he says in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 12, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, varieties of service, but the same Lord, varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So there's four each, there are two each, but for the common good. Uh, and all through these four, three chapters of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, Paul will talk about gifts as things which are meant to build up the body. Uh, That God is a God of peace, not a God of confusion. He is a God who has given a variety of gifts so that the body can be built up. Um, So giving of our gifts, giving of uh, our time, Often, when we come to talk about stewardship, we will talk about giving time, treasure, uh, talents, and territory. Uh, this, the word territory has come into these discussions recently. Uh, we need to be aware that the earth that we've been given is something we need to be stewards of as well, not just our, our time and our treasure and our talents. We've talked about tithing, so I don't think we need to do that anymore. Uh, one of the things that Jonathan has said a number of times in my hearing, the rector has said, is that um, by tithing, by giving, by putting something in the communion plate, I am saying I am not uh, I am not ruled by this money. Uh, I don't serve this money. Uh, I am. I don't worship this God. Um, and so it, it's a real. It is really a very helpful uh, part of our of our worship that we give. Any, um, oh, we need to talk about confirmation itself. We have a few minutes to talk about confirmation. How many of you are going to be confirmed tonight? Okay. Some of you. Confirmation. um, Confirmation really is is about two things. Confirmation is about asking for the Holy Spirit to empower us to do the ministry he has for us. So it's a a kind of, it's related to ordination. Ordination. but it's for every Christian. Uh, we, If we have been baptized and we believe in the Lord Jesus, then we need God's Spirit to empower us to do that. Obviously, if you believe in the Lord Jesus and you're baptized, the Holy Spirit lives in you. There's no question about that. But uh, Paul tells us uh, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, con- continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. So confirmation is a time in which the bishop will pray for people uh, that they will be uh, filled with the Holy Spirit to do the mission that God is giving them to do. One of the traditional prayers for confirmation is that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit more and more. Uh, So that's that's number one, is uh, we're not saying that the person who is not confirmed is not a Christian. We are saying that uh, someone who has been baptized as a baby uh, and now is an adult needs to to affirm those vows taken at his or her baptism for themselves and pray for the Holy Spirit to uh, to empower them to live the Christian life. So that's number one. Uh The second thing about confirmation is that it says something about uh, membership in this particular body, uh, particular part of the body of Christ, uh, which is Anglican. Uh, That is that this is a global fellowship of people who desire uh, to be accountable to one another across cultures, uh, and therefore are praying for the Holy Spirit in a sense to, to bind them together with the rest of the church. Um, so it's both an empowering for ministry and also uh, a confirmation that, that the believer is part of a particular body. Uh, does that make some sense? Does that uh, help? It is a tricky thing. Uh, there, there is no service of confirmation in the New Testament. Uh, the The way that most people became Christians in the New Testament as adults was to be baptized, uh, because that's what because most people became Christians as adults. Uh, there are lots of examples, I think, in the New Testament of why we should baptize children as well. Household baptism. Uh, takes place a couple of times in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul makes a parallel between baptism and uh, circumcision in the book of Colossians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about your children being holy. So I think there's, there's lots of reason why we should be baptizing children. But confirmation is really something that was needed to complete that act of baptism for those who were baptized as children. So if we were baptized later on, are you saying we don't need to be confirmed? You know, that's a big debate that's going on. <laughs> it's a big debate that's going on. Uh, some will say, no, you don't need to be confirmed. But I think the importance of being confirmed as well as being baptized, and the normal thing would be to baptize and confirm someone on, at the same time, on the same day. So that's that. I did that quite a bit in Africa. To be confirmed is to to pray for uh, that empowering of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So it's a more intentional thing. Uh, Baptism is is a rite of of initiation, first of all. Confirmation is a rite of initiation in a sense, but it's more a rite. Of commissioning, uh, it's uh, receiving the spirit in order to go out. I was confirmed after I've been baptized. I was a, I was a teenager and I baptized. Yeah. 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 It was just something because I didn't grow up in the Anglican right. tradition. Mm-hmm. Right. Just, um, Important for me just to kind of step into right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I felt it was very valuable to me in the sense that you're talking about uh, my my own ownership of the, uh, the the idea that I'm a member of this community. I got baptized when I was a teenager, so it was. Um, I, I was I was I was of age to make decisions, but I was yep. a teenager, <laughs> right? Um, and so, like, fully stepping into that right. when I was uh, in my twenties yep. and saying and having someone, right, uh, in, in official capacity, say that the church is um, invested in that and that they are equipping yeah. yeah, there's within uh, the new ACNA rights. There's there's also uh, the opportunity for someone to reaffirm uh their commitment to christ maybe they've had some uh incredible spiritual experiences happen to them and and it's kind of turned their life around after they were they were were a christian but still something has happened to them and they want to reaffirm their commitment to christ or uh perhaps they were confirmed as a teenager Mm -hmm. you know and and you know teenagers are a particular kind of person (laughs) And things happen as they go along. So one of those who will come on Sunday for a prayer from the bishop has been confirmed, but she wants to reaffirm her commitment to Christ because she feels that, you know, she kind of stepped away from Christ for a while and now wants to reaffirm her commitment. So I think that's really uh, a very valuable thing.